night I am. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you this evening? I am doing pretty daggum well, Matt, and 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 I want to say here in uh, in my Will fucks up the show moment, I, I want to to toss it out there to the good. Patreon supporters there in the world. I feel like we have uh, what, six. That feels right. Five or six. I'd have to go back and look at it or just count at the end of the show. Everyone count at the end of the show to tell how many we've got. Yeah. Something to, uh, something to look forward to. But I want to share with uh, with everyone uh, listening to this show, uh, the freeloaders out there. Um, I want to share our dream, our dream, our goal. When we get to 20, when we get to 20 of you good people signing up uh, to financially support us, we're going to record a special, probably marathon episode that's got nothing to do with Batman. We're going to rank the Star Trek movies, but we're only going to do that once we get 20 of you people on board. So for the freeloaders out there, get your shit together, support the very best Batman podcast out there and, and help make this dream of this Star Trek bonus episode a reality. I'm asking you because even though you're going to listen to this in, in March, uh, 2023, uh, it's the episode before Christmas and it's my Christmas wish that we get to those 20 supporters and then we make that bonus episode and I can have 45 minutes of barely coherent screaming about why Star Trek Into Darkness is the worst piece of excrement ever committed to film. So that's, that's where I am this week. I'm happy. I'm excited where this podcast is going. I'm looking forward to, to the new year and uh, for 14 more of you motherfuckers to sign up and, uh, and quit just listening to this show for free. Now... I, I, I will add, while I understand that not everyone can afford to back us on Patreon, you can help in other ways. Right now, we are not just on XF as we were the, the first few weeks. We are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. As of this week of recording, we're on Spotify. Go to your platform of choice and give us five stars. Help us spread the word of the joy that is bat chat give us six stars six stars we earned it yeah and if you you write a good review i just might read it on the air so you know another way to to, to help the show and get your name out there and if you write a bad review i'm going to come to your house and shit in your face you know if there was ever a moment that more defined will and my (laughs) you know divergent way of dealing with things i think you just heard it and that's why we work so well together that is but you know now that we we've gotten that the banter out of the way let's dig into this gonna be very interesting episode this week as she enters arkham tower and continues her return to gotham city and the main bat family 
we're looking at three stories starring the Huntress, the sometimes daughter of Batman, sometimes daughter of mobsters, but a character who always kicks some serious butt. We're dealing with three very distinct Huntress stories from three very distinct eras of this character. And as I was talking to Matt in our extensive pre-show preparation, this is very close to uh, Matty Laser's original vision for this show and, and his idea. And, and we stick closer to this in some episodes uh, than others. But his original idea is three stories with a theme from three different eras. And I think in this episode, we really kind of nail that vibe because these, these stories almost completely different. And yet they're all about Huntress. Indeed they are. And the first story is the very first Huntress story. From each ending, a beginning. From DC Superstars number 17. The writer was Paul Levitz. Pencils by Joe Statton. Inks by Bob Layton. Colors by Anthony Tolan. Letters by Ben Oda. Edited by Paul Levitz. Uh, The cover date is December of 1977. This story tells the origin of the original Huntress, Helena Wayne, the daughter of the Earth 2 Batman and Catwoman, and sets up her history, which in this case is much more of a Batman and Catwoman story until the very end. This is a short. This is 12, 13 pages. The DC Superstars book was an anthology that collected some reprints and did some original material. The other stories in this issue were origin tales of the Legion of Superheroes and Green Arrow. We aren't going to be talking about those. We're focused entirely on the Huntress story that is the final story and which would springboard the Huntress into a series of backups in Batman Family and joining the Justice Society in various Justice Society appearances. I want to break in here for just a second, because I did read the Green Arrow story, and I I had never looked into the origin of Green Arrow before, and I'm stunned that it's a... That it's fucking cast away, uh, and he got bored and uh, and had to use a bow and arrow, and he be- just became good at, at at this, you know, improvised bow and arrow stuff. And he decided to stick with it. Just insanity. And what's great is, you know, that's a that, that's a golden age origin. You'd think they might have changed that as time has evolved. Nope. There's no fixing that. I mean, Still I guess you origin. could. You could make him a billionaire like Olympian, but eh, that that sounds like too much work. The only real difference in the most recent tellings, in some of those original tellings, he winds up getting off the island because there's people farming drugs on the island. And in the versions from, I think, probably the 60s, they were, you know, growing marijuana crops out on this island. Uh, it's it's now opium or cocaine. It's something that is a lot more dangerous than marijuana. Because, you know, I mean, th- th- that reeks of reefer madness. <sighs> but but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I thought this was just a really just straightforward little story. Like it, it could have been prose for what it did and its ambitions. 
And it, it wasn't bad by any stretch. Like it told a good straightforward story. It just didn't do much beyond that. No, this is set up. This is yeah. exposition. So you know who this new character is. I'm, and it's something I should have looked up before. So I'm going to, you know, vamp for a second while I look something up because I should have before. Uh, I'm trying to figure out when Power Girl made her first appearance. Ah, February 1976. So there you go. Power Girl, who was the Earth 2 version of Supergirl, who became Huntress's BFF on Earth 2, was introduced just a little before this. So I guess they were really trying to set up a earth to world's finest of the next generation of younger female heroes to sort of take the place of the traditional Batman and Superman as Batman had retired. And I think Superman was still kicking around active on earth Two. probably for those of you who are newer fans and might not be as familiar with that particular concept of the multiverse should explain earth Two back before Crisis and Infinite Earths, in the original multiverse, the Silver Age took place on Earth-1. That was your contemporary DC universe and your Barry Allen and Hal Jordan as Flash and Green Lantern. The stories from the Golden Age with the original Flash and Green Lantern, Jay Garrick and Alan Scott, took place on Earth-2, on a parallel Earth. Some characters... Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, were still Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, Diana Prince, but their origins and backstory started earlier, started in the 40s. So this story set in the 70s doesn't have a Batman who's at the peak of his crime fighting. This is a Batman who's semi-retired and you know, gray at the temples and married and has an adult daughter. We will get to some other Earth 2 Batman stories, specifically ones that are specifically set on Earth 2, not just ones that took place before they became Earth 1 stories, but stories that were written during that Earth 1 period that feature the Batman of Earth 2 and his relationship with Selina Kyle in the future at some point. But this one gives you a good feel for who those characters were at this point. You know, the retired Catwoman and the semi-retired Batman. And, and what a classic, you know, crime story we have here in this, uh, in this origin for Huntress. Catwoman gets called in for one last job. One last job that goes horribly wrong. Catwoman, who is, was able to re-enter society because she did her time and never committed the unpardonable sin with regardless of any earth, as long as the Batman is not evil, the unpardonable sin, she never killed anybody. And here, one of her old gang, Silky Cernak shows up with evidence that she did kill someone, which Catwoman didn't believe she did. So he pulls her in, he swears he'll destroy the negatives and the photo and it'll be all right. And then it all goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. You got to do this one last job. One last job, and then I'll uh, get rid of this picture. And I got to say, Silky and his team, 
so so they're, they're bringing selena on this caper which they needed her because she'd spent a lot of time at the gotham civic center as selena kyle now that she was or selena wayne and they decide hey instead of you know just sneaking in as best as possible let's put on our old catwoman henchman togs straight out of you know your your silver age stories and your batman 66s they're in catwoman costumes and of course dick grayson who's grown up robin is away in madagascar because why not hey sounds like a good fucking time to me yeah and so bruce has to come out of retirement because gordon has has contacted him and i i gotta say the gordon here looks a hell of a lot older than the gordon from that last batman story who's probably <laughs> be older but this, i guess earth 2 that gordon hard life hard life uh, lots of pipe smoke but this winds up with selena dying silky takes a shot at batman and gets her instead and that sort of breaks Bruce and he retires sort of you know Dark Knight returns only it's Selena's death and not Jason Todd's that causes him to just sort of give up but in this case Helena his daughter takes up the mantle and says that same oath that Bruce says over his parents grave in the the Silver Age and becomes the huntress to find Silky and bring him to justice yeah, it's an interesting idea for Batman in that his war on crime begins with a murder. And at least in a few different stories, it ends with a murder. And I think that's, I don't know exactly what that says about the, about the character, but it's an interesting idea. It is, and it makes, I'm not sure what is more interesting, that or the Batman who, after Jason's death, pushes through it because it never stops and neither can he they're both different interesting takes on the character and i mean part of it also is that the main batman can't quit after a murder because then the intellectual property ends and (laughs) that can't happen oh no no we got to keep fucking this chicken for another 100 200 years if Arthur Conan Doyle couldn't get away from Sherlock Holmes and he wasn't a corporate megal. Oh, I, there was a word there and it completely jumped out of my head. Monolith. That's the word, not mega anything, corporate monolith. But yeah, I mean, you get some Huntress right there. You get Huntress using the crossbow from first appearance, which is, other than the name, the one thing that other than the first name and the alter ego, the one thing that connects all the versions of Huntress is she always uses a crossbow. At the end, they do reveal that Silky had faked the photo of Selena. Thus, you bastard. And thus redeeming her in the end. You, you couldn't have her wind up being a killer. And the very last bit is so purely Silver Age, despite being a mid-Bronze Age story where Bruce and Helena are stopping by police headquarters and Silky is tied up outside and 
Bruce's like, oh, I guess Dick must have gotten back. And Helen's like, I don't know. I think it might be someone new. Who knows? <laughs> like looking straight out of the panel at the audience. That is a Silver Age Superman trope where at the end of every story, Lois was always like, oh, what will happen to Superman? And Clark's like, I don't know, Lois. Wink. Yeah. This, again, there's not a ton to, to talk about in this story because it is so expositional. There is a trade probably long out of print that collects all of the Huntress backups that I read when it came out. And it's, it's a fun little book. Uh, the Levitt's, we didn't actually talk about Paul Levitt's. Um, I don't think we have, we haven't read any Paul Levitt's on here. I mean, Levitt's was DC editor-in-chief for 20-something years. And aside from creating Huntress, is probably best known for a massive and influential run on the Legion of Superheroes. He's the guy who brought Darkseid into the Legion with Keith Giffen for the Great Darkness Saga, which is probably the greatest Legion of Superhero story ever told. But Levitz is a, a major Bronze Age creator and is drawn by Joe Staten, who we haven't heard the last of for this episode. This story has a very clean, very Silver Age look to it, which probably comes from Bob Layton's inks. He's got a very clean style himself, so the two of them together make for a really pretty, very Silver Age, very superhero style. I am struggling uh, to think of anything else to say about this thing, but as you've already said, it's very exposition-y. It goes from A to B to C in a very tidy, matter-of-fact kind of way. And like I said, it is by no means bad, just not a lot to it. No, and that's fine. Not every story is going to, we're not going to be doing deep analysis on every story. And I think we're going to have quite a bit more to say on the other two. Uh, uh, yes, we will. Yeah. So I think maybe it's time to just... Put it on the board. So moving over to our big list, which has broken 50 stories. Hey, we're, we're, we're really, we're getting along there. Story number one is still Batman year one from Batman volume one, numbers 404 to 407. Number 10 is Six Fingers from Legends of the Dark Knight, number 85 to 88. Number 20 is Homewreckers, Life on Mars, from Batman, The Brave and the Bold, number 20. Number 30 is The Clown at Midnight, from Detective 663. Number 40 is A Clash of Symbols, from Detective number 617. And down at the very bottom, at number 51, Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. You know, it's, it's still going to be the bottom for a while. But we're getting to the point. We got some Jason Todd tier Patreon backers who are going to be asking us to read some stories that are going to give it a run for its money. Oh, and in the coming months, we have not only Widening Gyre, but also uh, White Knight. And to my mind, uh, we haven't scheduled this yet. I think White Knight 2 is really the worst out of those three because it's so fucking boring. 
In my ever-continuing quest to drive the show into the ditch, I, I want to reach out to my, bro- my good brother Matt here. I am still questing to find six fingers in print. I thought I did the research. I thought I found the right 100-page Legends of the Dark Knight special. Uh, I bought it from eBay. Uh, I was disappointed. I bought the wrong damn book. So we can talk about this later, but uh, I want to get six fingers in print. Uh, But anyway, getting back on topic, I mean, this is obviously toward the bottom, but again, for no sort of fault of its own. Right. It's just not a particularly flashy story. It doesn't fall in that bottom area that below 45 that at 45 is when we get that scarecrow story from Batman, the active dislike. Right. Exactly. That's that point where it's like, yeah, these are stories that aren't great. Not even are great. These are stories that aren't good. Because above that, you've got Robin the Boy Wonder, the first appearance of Dick Grayson, which is a fa- it's similarly sort of expositional and golden agey. This is still better than that. But as we've said so many times, Holy Terror just takes those ridiculous swings. It's so I, wild. I kind of want to just, I want to slide it right in there. Um, now you, you say this is better or worse than... Detective 38. I think it's a little better than 38. Again, Golden Age stories are rough. Golden Age stories, while the kernel, the the basic narrative of Robin the Boy Wonder is more iconic, it's rough in places. It's got some weird bits. I mean, Batman basically letting Tony Zuko kill his henchmen so they can get a photo to send him to the chair. Nah, we got you now. That's a little out of character. That's still got a Batman who's kind of killing people. Uh, so I, I, it, it loses a couple points to that. And Dick Grayson kicking thugs on top of the girders on that building. Again, some of those guys aren't making it out of that one alive. The, the scum, Matt. Um, so you want to say the new 44 for that? I think the new number 44 is the proper space for from each ending a beginning. Our second story for the night is Days of Rage from Huntress Volume 1, numbers 17 to 19. The writer is Joey Cavalieri, penciled by Joe Statton. Inks by Bob Smith, colors by Robbie Bush, letters by Albert de Guzman, edited by Andy Helfer. The cover dates are August to October of 1990. In the final storyline from the ongoing series of the post-crisis Huntress, Helena Bertinelli meets Batman as a gang war is breaking out in the New York neighborhood where Helena lives and a criminal has made his way from Gotham to attempt to end the gang war and control the gangs, thus bringing Batman along with him. A little bit of background on this series and this version of the Huntress. As I said, this is the post-crisis Huntress. This is the one that probably most readers are familiar with, Helena Bertinelli, the daughter of the Bertinelli mob. This series ran for 19 issues. She made her, this incarnation made her first appearance in Huntress number one. And as of issue seven, this became a mature reader's book, a proto-Vertigo book, back when 
Vertigo type titles would actually interact with the DCU. At the same time, there was a Mature Reader's Green Arrow series, a Mature Reader's Question series that we will talk about later in our third story, actually. A lot of this has been retconned out or retconned slightly to better fit with Huntress as part of the Bat family and Gotham. Uh, Specifically, this story is set in New York and it establishes Huntress's origin in New York. That will be retconned multiple times later. It also has a huntress whose parents and family was murdered at the age of 19, not when she was a child, because her childhood trauma is so much worse and so cringy and so late 80s. It's the kind of thing you could not do now and you should never have done, let alone do now. Because at the age of six, she was kidnapped by someone the mob had sent. And when she shows up again, her clothes are all torn and she doesn't speak for the next few months and is traumatized. And it's never, nothing is ever expressly said but it is very clear what happened. And if there was anything that, thank God, was completely retconned out of existence, that's that's because that's the late 80s. That's comics can be edgy now. We can do this stuff. Just because you can do something does not mean you should do something. And that uh, that was in this series. Yeah, that was the from the first issue. Oh, Jesus. Throw this throw this thing in the dumpster. Never referenced again. Never referenced again. I I think even the writer of the series realized that probably shouldn't have done that. Nope. Can't can't take that back. Nope. But yeah, it's interesting that, um, you know, this is 1990. This is still when the comics code uh, nominally exists. But you have publishers with the rise of uh, of image here in the in the decade just deciding, oh, well, we just won't submit some books to the code. Ah, we'll just put this uh, mature, you know, readers label on it. And as they quickly found out, uh, nothing happened. There was no public outrage. There was no outcry. Uh, the moral panic had, you know, left some decades earlier. And it still amazes me that DC does not give up on the code completely for another 10 years. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's very strange. This is, and I, we've said this about other books. I think we said this about Dark Knight. This is very, very much of its time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is, oh, boy, this is pretty cringy. Yeah. Cringy. Um, I this is not as bad as that black and white short where you had, you know, somebody talking about gangs and you know Batman talking about oh this eleven year old with fourteen felonies on his record and oh he's trash garbage or oh. uh, nothing sinks to that level of not even latent racism, but this is still I don't I don't want some you know, some white guy at DC trying to write uh, New York City street gangs. It's just, it's weird and bad and just, no, just don't, don't do it. This reeks of that 
late 80s, early 90s, urban decay. Oh, yeah, narrative, absolutely. Which, oh, boy. And you I assume you read this digitally as I did. I, I mean, I have these singles somewhere, but I wasn't going to dig them out. No, no. The coloring on this is odd. The, the characters of color are colored. Human beings don't have that skin tone. Yeah, especially the uh, the leader of the, what, the Blood Reds, Rage? Yeah, he's, wow. He is, yeah. uh, not just it, but everything about that character. I mean, he looks, he dresses and looks like a, a extra from Miami Vice. He's uh, a member of these this New York street gang that you know moved up, and now he has a and he has a hacienda in Colombia, and he's this stereotype of the the drug czar. And we'll get to it probably when we talk about the the plot of it a little later. They start to do some almost interesting things with the character, but they start doing it towards the end of the story. And so it's a little too little, a little too late to really make him interesting, to make him anything more than that cardboard cutout. Yeah, this, the whole story, like there's nothing to depth of anyone. Even Batman and Huntress here come off as pretty shallow. Like Huntress is, oh, I, you know, I I can't stand what's happening in my neighborhood. It makes me so sad, but there's no, there's no depth to her. It feels like it could just be any character. Uh, doesn't seem to be much that makes her Huntress here. And the same for Batman. He just shows up and just decides to be an asshole. You'd think with, even though this, yes, was the last arc of this series, you'd think that when you're bringing Batman, and a Batman, you gotta think, this is 1990. This is right after 89. This is the height of Batmania. You would have think they would have really tried to do a good job of introducing Huntress and introducing her world in this book. But you never get any real background on who Huntress is in this arc. She doesn't appear until halfway through the first issue. And she just sort of gets out of bed, gets into costume and starts kicking butt. And there's no you know, explaining who she is, what she does. And there would have to be more eyes on this book because suddenly Batman is big on the cover of this issue. I don't understand why they didn't take some time to try to make a point of who this character is in this book. Let me ask you a theoretical here. Do you think... They start planning some kind of Batman arc in hopes of juicing the sales numbers. Yeah, as we're getting 17 and 18 into a later part of the book. Uh, and then they just decide, oh, uh, this thing is not going to work out. And so that they cancel it. I Because it just it ends on such a strange note. And you don't plan a book to 19 issues, right? That math just doesn't work out. So. To me, it seems like a logical idea. They bring Batman on in hopes of juicing it, and they figure, oh, this is just not going to work, and then they cancel it. 
yeah and and at the time huntress had i guess had met batman before in an issue of justice league international where she guest starred because th- this was the period where batman was nominally on the justice league but only sort of popped up occasionally and she guest starred and then her next appearance is in the justice league international special where she's again sort of on the team but only appears a couple of times then sort of wanders away so it felt like they were trying to really do something with the character and weren't sure what to do and after this she disappears for a couple of years before uh popping up again in detective where she you know, is in Gotham and becomes a regular member of a recurring member of the Bat family, if not a regular member for another couple of years after that. I, I agree. There had to have been some plans for more Huntress that didn't come to fruition. I guess we haven't talked about the details of this plot. Oof. Yeah, so there's a kid who had appeared in one of the earlier arcs of the series, uh, James, whose family were killed by drug dealers. And so he decides he's this science savant. And so he escapes from the orphanage and builds bombs and plants them and starts blowing up drug dealers. He's uh, he builds bombs with uh, a child's uh, toy putty. That's that's the signature bomb making uh, implement that gives him away to Batman. And, and James is what twelve, probably around there. Weird as fuck. However old he is. Yeah, it's it's a boy howdy, a strange choice to have this twelve year old killing lots and lots of people with bombs that kill indiscriminately he doesn't ever blow up anyone who isn't a drug dealer which i guess makes him redeemable maybe but he kills a lot of drug dealers and again this is the late 80s early 90s where a little bit beyond your you know death wish dirty harry period that's still the late 70s early 80s but we're still not so far beyond that that you can't have people who are like oh you know they had it coming oh i'm sure i'm sure they were still making more uh death wishes in uh, in 1990 oh oh i'm i'm sure they were but i think we were out of the the main you know when those were a major driving force. God, if if I could just have that movie without all the racism, how much fun it would be! Uh, alas, yeah. The story structure here is okay. I mean, they introduce the fact that the drug dealers are working off of a barge, which is so obvious. Like this is a setup for something because they wouldn't have made it a barge if they weren't going to do something with that barge. And that comes back around at the end. Arr, it'd be convenient to me drug operation to set it up on a barge. Someday we're gonna we're gonna do a Cap and Fear story, the the pirate bat villain. We're gonna have fun with that one. 
but yeah, to just to finish the 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 storyline thread on on James, uh, James starts blowing up drug dealers indiscriminately. That sets off a gang war because you know the gangs aren't looking for uh, a twelve year old. Uh, and then we get Rage to come in and say, "Hey, cut out this gang war stuff. We got to be uh, one gang, one unified front." Uh, you know, pushing these drugs. And again, very much of its time, they don't ever say it, but this is obviously an analog for the Bloods and the Crips. Oh, oh, they so desperately wanted to say Bloods and Crips. Like, they they wanted so bad. Again, boy, this really has a rip from the headlines sort of vibe to it for i would say good or ill but it's it's mostly for ill let's let's yeah. be fair on that yeah one. listen cavalieri is his heart is in the right place right place his, adjacent yeah with his liberal guilt or what feels like liberal guilt i don't know much about the guy but it feels like that but it's Yo, it's really problematic with how it's handled. But I mentioned before, Rage, by the end of this, we're really getting this vibe of misogyny and a real toxic masculinity thing. Oh, yeah. About, you know, real men would do this with their fists. And, you know, we will be lots of talk of real men, lots of proto MRA stuff here that would have made for a more interesting character if it wasn't really stuff they started dealing with an issue and a half into a three issue story. If they had had him confront Huntress earlier on and we had seen more of that misogyny there, but he doesn't actually come face to face with Huntress until the end of the third issue, until the climax of the story, the second issue of this story, the villains don't even encounter the heroes. Batman and Huntress are fighting and hunting down James, and they're not dealing with the villains. The first issue really doesn't have much of that. Batman confronts Rage in Gotham. And you get a lot of James in that first issue. Yeah, I mean, and James, who would stay with Huntress in her next appearance in Justice League International and then disappear into the ether after that. Went back to his home planet. And the beginning of the third issue, when Batman and Huntress are having this six-page, wordy, philosophical debate about whether or not they should bring, one of the other should bring James to the police... Oh, my God, if you had trimmed that down, you would have had more time to not rush the climax of this story, which could be an issue with some of those proto vertigo early mature readers books where there was a lot of waxing philosophical. Not every writer is Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman or Grant Morrison who can write those long wordy philosophical debates and have them be engaging he'll be one more dead body and life will go on the street as before 
it is a lot of talking. It's a lot of talking. And then we, we get to the very end after, you know, Batman is taken rage away. And I guess they just bats just decides to leave James with Huntress. And that's that the kid gets away with killing many people. It's uh, it's like um, one of the reasons I hated Star, uh, Star Trek Picard. Uh, you get that nice doctor lady who, uh, you know, just kills somebody in cold blood and nothing happens. And I mean, yeah, it's one of these things where I sit back. It's like there are extenuating circumstances for James. He's severely traumatized. He's acting out, but he also murdered a lot of people. And that that kid ain't never gonna be right, right? It's like uh, it's like James Gordon, you know, Jr. Like he does bad stuff and you're not going to fix it and the, the first time you think building a bomb is a solution to a problem there's there's no coming back from that it's it, it's a problem and never addressed the the character just disappears uh, i mean this does in many ways set up the post-crisis dynamic between batman and huntress that we'll see a lot of in the next story and in pretty much every Huntress story with Batman for a lot of years until they finally make peace years and years later. But this sort of confrontational relationship where Bruce's very strict sense of morality butts up against Huntress's much more accepting of eventually having to cross that line that Bruce never crosses but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. I don't know if I have much else on this one. Uh, nothing else to say except for just ain't good. So I guess that means time to put it on the board. Does this fall into that bottom clutch of stories? If it had cranked up the racism just a little bit more, it could have gotten me to that place of, wow, I fucking hate this. It didn't quite get there for me. No, I don't think there is ill intent in this book. Yeah, this is this is not Chuck Dixon writing the story. This is somebody who's trying to make a good social point and it's awkward. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I don't think it winds up like part of me never likes to put two stories from the same episode back to back because it, it feels a little like, well, you know, we, we, you get a place on the list in your head and you're just kind of doing stuff around there. But this is, I think, right in that same general area that we were. Yeah. Cause again, you get much past Speeding Bullets, Holy Terror, Grim Night. You're looking at books that tried to do something and maybe had some good things. Uh, they just didn't quite get there. And of course, obviously, you move further up the list and you get to the books that really succeeded. You move down from 44 into the, you know, the latter part of the 40s and into the 50s. Like These are really books that sucked ass. And this is just, it's right there on that threshold between 
trying and failing and sucking ass. So I, I look, I, I'm with you. Like, you know, this is, this might look arbitrary, but we really do put some fucking thought into where these things go on this list. Uh, oh, you know, this is, oh, before we continue, just because we didn't talk, uh, Joe Staten, who drew that previous issue, drew the first appearance of Huntress, drew all those early Huntress stories, also drew all 19 issues of this Huntress series. Hardworking man. Yeah, I mean, he, I, I have a sketch of the Earth 2 Catwoman in my sketchbook from Joe Staten. He's still doing, he was still doing cons as of a couple of years ago. Those, you know, those artists of the Bronze Age workhorses, I mean, you can tell it's the same artist, but it's a much grittier style, probably different inker, different colors to, to better fit that, you know, mature reader's style of the DC Super books. serious. Yeah, of that era. But yeah, just wanted to, to mention that, Joe Staten. I mean, does it go above or below from each ending and beginning? That story had zero ambition, right? It just existed to just to just do a thing. Um, and I don't know whether we should reward or punish whatever ambition this book had. But I think it's, it's either going to be right above or right below. Again, 46, 47, 48, like active dislike. And then I don't, I can't put this above Holy Terror, I don't think. No. I, I can't put it above Holy Terror. You know what? Honestly, I think this this might actually go. This might be our new dividing line because I think Robin the Boy Wonder. At no point did it make me go. Ugh. There were bits of this that made me went go. Even though I could absolutely say, well, they're not trying to do that. They're not really intentionally doing things that are horrible and they were things that might not have even been viewed as horrible in 1990 but now 30 years later so maybe this is our new number 46 below robin the boy wonder yeah that so that's uh days of rage now our final story of the night is Cry for Blood. This is Batman Huntress Cry for Blood, numbers one to six, written by Greg Rucka, pencils by Rick Burchett, inks also by Burchett, colors by Tatiana Wood, letters by Clem Robbins, edited by Denny O'Neill and Joseph Illich, with cover dates of June to November of 2000. In this six-issue miniseries, someone is mur- has murdered a couple of mobsters with crossbow bolts leading Batman to possibly believe the Huntress has once again crossed the line. But someone is framing Huntress, and we begin to learn details of her backstory while she learns details of her own life that she never knew. This is a Greg Rooka book. I love a good Greg Rooka book. This is right in his fucking wheelhouse. Uh, it's It's a strong female character, it's crime like this is if you could have gone back in time to 2000 and said greg rucka what what book you want to write what book would you like to spend the rest of your career writing he'd be like i want to write this i want to do i want to do strong female characters i want to do serious like 
grounded, gritty, you know, crime stuff, like, boom. I mean, Huntress is one of those characters who is a Rucka protagonist. If you read Rucka's novels, if you read his creator-owned comics, a strong female protagonist is Rucka's thing. Whether it's Wonder Woman or Kate Kane or Renee Montoya from his DC work or White Out. Yep. Uh, Carrie Stetko from White Out. Tara Chase from Queen and Country. Uh, He wrote an elect uh did some time on Electra for Marvel. These are characters that are absolutely Greg Rucka characters. That's a character he knows how to write and he likes to write. And he's working with Rick Burchett, who is an artist who he has worked a lot with over the years. Burchett did a number of the issues of Detective Comics that Rucka would write in coming years. This story takes place right after No Man's Land, which Rucka was one of the major architects of the back half of, and where Huntress played a key role and is one of the reasons why she's so damn bitter towards Batman, because Batman played her pretty hard during No Man's Land. Something we will get to when we cover No Man's Land, which we will not be covering in one episode because... That's a year's worth of, of stories. We're, we're going to be breaking that up into its component arcs because no, J- just no. So, same, same thing with Nightfall. You know, we're, uh, we got to take these big stories in chunk. Again, Will tries to drive the show into a ditch uh, with my second installment of, uh, of an infrequent series, AdWatch. AdWatch. <laughs> This this mini came on to kind of at least my radar because I just happened to be in a comic shop in uh, in Dothan, Alabama, and I picked up the the nicely bagged collection of the six original floppies. And in what I think is the most extensive preparation I have done for this show, I went through all six issues and made note of every ad except for the generic house ads. And I want to start first with with the marketing pitch of the time, and this was this was consistent through all of the ads for the uh, the the DC books that were out, and this was the tagline that we're using at the time in 2000. And I want to see what memory you had of this, what your impression of this, why they were using this at the time. It was DC, the original universe. That was the marketing. Do you remember anything about that? Not particularly. I'm, I'm trying to think if it was a shot across the bow at Marvel, if Marvel was doing something at that point. But was, uh, that the only thing I can think of, and it might actually be before that. Or, okay, no, it's, it's too early. For, I was wondering if that was a shot at Marvel doing the Ultimate line, the reboot for the 2000s. But that didn't start until the end of 2000. And this was before that. So, Interesting. Yeah, that might have just been, you know, those ad wizards coming up with something. Uh, let's see. Uh, most of the floppies have uh, a back uh, back cover ad for entertaindom.com, which apparently feature interactive movies that you could like choose your own Superman adventure. Um, and that's all fine and good until we get to one 
uh, inside cover ad for Xena the Warrior Princess, quote, are you man enough to control the Warrior Princess? Real ad copy there. Uh, let's, let's see. We'll do some uh, some quick hits. Shadow Watch, the video game. Warner pushing very hard for its uh, movie pay-per-view service. Mickey Blue Eyes. Something else came up on that. Three Kings, House on Haunted Hill. All now on movie pay-per-view. Hardcover reprints of The Spirit. Real Worlds, Justice League uh, America by J.M. DeManis, uh, uh, G.L. Barr, Lazarus, Soups versus Predator, lots of sculptures and uh, action figures, uh, porcelain sculpture of Barry Allen and Jay Garrick uh, for only $195 U.S., $315 Canadian. Wildstorm, uh, miniseries Countdown, New Teen Titans figures. Uh, JLA Amazing Androids action figures, a tribute to Gil Kane as written by Denny O'Neill. Nightmare Creatures 2, the video game, soundtrack by Rob Zombie. A Terminus, the video game with epic space combat RPG. One of these issues had, had several, and I mean several full page ads devoted to a Stan Lee project, The Seventh Portal, stanlee.net. It oh. sounds like every later in life Stanley thing, really, really bad. Silver Age, the miniseries. Which we talked about last episode briefly as Mark Wade referenced it in uh, Tower of Babel. Oh, that's right. And it came up in no, uh, nowhere else. Ewanted.com, turning auctions upside down. The Batman of Arkham Elseworld by Alan Grant, which... Uh, which put in my head for one more uh, Elseworlds episode that uh, we'll, we'll do, because uh, those are just fun. Reinventing Comics by Scott McCloud, Real World's Superman, uh, DC plush toys, including Batmite and that, uh, that, uh, that Superman guy with too many consonants, uh, consonants that I can't pronounce. Planetary. This ad came up a couple of times. A, vet, a Batman vampire porcelain statue for 195 US, 315 Canadian, quote, comes with tombstone and grave. Alice Cooper, brutal planet album, now available on compact disc at Best Buy. We got some Star Wars. We got uh, Superman Arkham, Legend of the Hawkman, Planet DC Annual, the Bottle, of, uh, the bottle City of Candor. 175 US, 280 Canadian, limited to 118. However, it does require four AA batteries. Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, uh, Shazam, and Billy Batson. Billy Batson action figures with transformation chamber. A Wonder Woman statue, 150, uh, 195 US, 325 Canadian. Green Lantern, Circle of Life. Circle of Life, Circle of Fire. Circle of Fire. Why did I write down Circle of Life? I don't know. I think it, it had Lion King on the brain, I guess. Uh, Supernova, starring James Spader and Angela Bassett, now with never-before-seen R-rated version. Finger Eleven's newest album, The Grayest of Blue Skies. JLA, Heaven's Ladder. JLA, The Secret Society of Superheroes. A whole shit ton of Flash figures. Uh, an ad for DC, or uh, Stan Lee creating the DC Universe. Justice Flight, Batman uh, Beyond figure, which uh, has the note... Hold button to achieve pose. Uh, Two-page spread for a science fiction book club of the month. 
for five dollars, you could, or for excuse me, for one dollar, you could get five books. You could choose from different Star Trek, Star Wars, L. Ron Hubbard, No Man's Land, or a Transmetropolitan. Uh, we got a two-page spread for Vampire Hunter for PS One, uh, an ad for Game Pro, uh, an ad for the television premiere of Dark Angel, and a Levi's ad. And I think that was everything across those those six issues. Lots and lots and lots of uh, DC upcoming uh, series. Not a lot of outside stuff, which was surprising. Uh, and unfortunately, no more clear cell ads. Disappointing. Thank you, Will, for sending me back to the year 2000. In the year 2000. So, to Huntress, this is a mob story. Very much so. Even more than the long Halloween was. This is pretty thoroughly researched, or it feels very authentic. It feels like Ruka dug into really the, the mafia and how it worked and tried to craft this story to have that very realistic sort of vibe. Yeah, and... It tells a good story. I think my only issue is that right there in the middle, three and four is a real slowdown. Three especially uh, reminded me of uh, in the Ninja Turtle movies where the turtles go upstate to the, to the farm and the thing just kind of slows down, right? We get a lot of action in the first two issues. We get interested in, you know, who's setting up Huntress and then we slow down to her basically her kind of emotional recovery. And then number four is the flashback issue. And I, to me, the, the, the miniseries doesn't quite recover the same momentum it had from those first two issues. But it, man, Rucka really got in there to the mob stuff. Like, I feel like we could have had some kind of family tree or some notes <laughs> that would have been really helpful to understanding this. But, uh, but the basic idea is not that complicated, right? Uh, Helena's family uh, is one of the, the, the core families of the Gotham mob. Her pa becomes Don, right? And, uh, and he says, uh, we're, not, we're not opening the books. We're not letting in any other families to the, to the Gotham mob. And then uh, that upsets people. <laughs> and somebody puts out a hit on the Don. This firmly moves her from New York, her backstory from New York to Gotham. This retcons out most of that original series. Smart. Uh, I mean, some of the stuff remains. The fact that Mandragora, the Italian Don, who was ultimately responsible for the Bertinelli's being killed, that's from the original Huntress series. But we only see him in one panel here because we find out about his man in Gotham who arranged the killing. And we'll get to that because that's part of the big reveal at the end of this series. Issue three, the very end of issue two and issue three is Rucka being a fanboy. Oh, yeah. Because that is a love letter to the beginning of Denny O'Neill's question series. That is basically... The first issue of Denny O'Neill and Dennis Cowan's The Question ends with Vic Sage being shot 
falling into the river and being dragged out by Lady Shiva, who brings him to Richard Dragon. At the end of issue two of this series, Huntress falls into the river. The question drags her out of the water and brings her to Richard Dragon. And then for the second issue of the hunt of the question series, he trains with Richard Dragon. In issue three, she trains with Richard Dragon. That is clearly a formational book for Rucka. And this is him doing a big homage to that. While also doing some really interesting and logical stuff with the parallels between the Huntress and Vic Sage, establishing Vic Sage as one of her supporting characters. And he'll go on to write a lot more question. I mean, 52 is Rucka doing Montoya and the question, which is amazing stuff. And I, oh, it's so good. I mean, I think I love the way Rucka writes the question. And I love the way he writes the hundreds. And I love the dynamic between the two of them with Vic trying to be the Zen mentor to her that Dragon was to him and doing his best. But, and there's a lot, lots of references to that question series, which you would get a, a hell of a kick out of reading at some point. It's phenomenal. But yeah, I mean, it is definitely a detour from the, the main story. But if you read the question stuff, it, it's a loving homage. So for me, it worked a little better than it did probably for you because I knew what Rucka was, was referencing. I will say, again, and this is something we've, we've seen in a couple of other stories. You saw this in year three as well. The families of the Gotham mob change conveniently based on the story you are telling. No mention of the Falcones or the Moronis here. They're, they're not there. And it's like, okay, so we got a different five families. But it works for this story. And I'm sure there are ways you could work around that pretty easily with Falcone rising to, you know, fill the gap after Franco Bertinelli is murdered or something. But, eh. I'm not going to hold that against Rucka because he did what he needed to do to tell this very traditional story of Omerta and all of the, 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 the mob culture. That was, that was an idea that, uh, that I found especially interesting, Omerta. You know, Huntress explains it in the first couple of pages, uh, I think issue one, right? Yep. Uh, where she says, uh, we view the state as the enemy and you should never run to the state for help. And that is your free first amendment lesson of the night. This is what I always tell my students in a country that, that we have the first amendment, that uh, we have uh, protection from governmental consequences for speech, uh, aside from a very few distinct categories, true threats, incitements, fighting words, obscenity, um, in a free society, in a democracy, you cannot run to the government for help when you find speech you don't like. Uh, so yeah, uh, First Amendment America. Uh, those, that first issue, that whole sequence where you see the history of the Bertinelli family, the, the use of the sepia tones and the colors there, it makes for a really gorgeous looking sequence. 
Burchett is really firing on all cylinders in this book. We have one other Burchett story on the list. He did that Gotham Adventures issue, The Dead Man issue in the animated series style. And you can see a little bit of that in his art even here. But this is a much stronger book for him. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a little bit of a shame. My, my ad watch aside, I think... I think some of the interior uh, pages here are a little bit yellowed because I don't think the colors came out precisely as they should have, uh, you know, 20 years later. Uh, so it kind of makes me want to go look at this digitally now. It, it looks real nice digitally. I, I again, I, I bet it does dig out my floppies, but I'd wait. I mean, since I bag and board my books immediately and they're all individually bagged and board, they usually hold up pretty well, but I've, I've gotten my, share of sets like that and it's like they're never quite as crisp as you'd like no uh and there were some great two-page spreads uh in these books really nice visually narratively telling a great story and and normally because i'm reading digitally i i really don't like two-page spreads because that makes me turn the goddamn ipad and i hate fucking turning the ipad (laughs) especially when there's not a good enough reason uh but we had some great visuals uh in those spreads This story very much has Bruce in the my city sort of mindset, which, you know, is his problem with Huntress. Huntress has always sort of stood up to him when he's been that way, because as she says, the Bertinelli's have been in Gotham for 100 years. They are old Gotham as much as the Waynes are. So that, you know, shit don't fly with her. Yeah, it's hard to not read this story and get some notes of, uh, you know, Haikatia in here. Uh, it's the same themes that come that come in here. You have uh, a female character trying to do what she believes is right. Uh, and her moral compass is different than Batman's. And you have Batman who comes in and says, this is the way things are going to be done because my moral compass points one way and it always has and it always will. But eventually he comes around when Mm. she gets back to Gotham, he's much more accepting. And that's usually how Rucka writes Batman. And so I was glad that we got some of that Batman by the end of this series. We also see that she has a much better relationship with the younger generation of the Bat family, that when she came to Gotham after a couple of encounters with batman that weren't too great she and tim drake teamed up a few times and so she and tim have a really good relationship and she and dick had a thing for a little while so let me ask you about this like right i think we give rucka a lot of credit for writing these characters what do you think of how he handled oracle okay here's the thing that bugged me out of the gate too because i didn't like her being so catty towards dick's ex but then i remembered because you haven't read no man's land i have not and that's the thing she's not being catty about dick's ex huntress appropriates the batgirl identity in no man's land okay the first half of no man's land there's a Batgirl running around Gotham and nobody knows who it is except Oracle who figures it out. And eventually Bruce 
Bruce probably figured it out all along. And it's Huntress appropriating the Batgirl identity. And after Huntress fails one of Bruce's tests, he takes the costume and says, you can't be Batgirl anymore. And that's when Cassandra Kane becomes Batgirl. Oracle's bitter towards Huntress because Huntress took over as Batgirl without her consent. Of course, though, on the page, it does read being mad because she had a thing with Dick. And Interesting. I, and I made that note initially about me not liking that. And I was like, oh, right. She had a whole thing about that during No Man's Land. That makes that make a lot more sense and be a lot. Because I mean, it's like, you know, Barbara's never had an issue with Starfire or anything like that. Like, oh, right. This is about something entirely different. And it won't be until Babs brings her into the fold as a bird of prey that the hatchet is really buried between the two of them. So I think we could have done a little bit more to point that out on the page, but uh, I, I will buy your explanation for that. I mean, I might be no prizing it a little, but I prefer that to Rucka getting Barbara so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Again, having read so many of his other books and basically trusting him and, and most of what he writes, that seemed like a sour note, but that is a more than plausible explanation. So as you know, we should probably get to the end because we're, we're going to you know, spoil this because, again, this is from year 2000, 21 years old. It's on DC Universe. Old enough got, to drink. Yeah, it's old enough to drink. It's old enough for us to spoil. When she gets back to Gotham, we, she finds who was behind the framing of her. And it's one of the other Dons, Santo Casamento, who, as she learns, is her biological father, which completely turns her world on its ear. But then we get the ending where I mean, he's holding this over her, that he knows she's Huntress. He's figured it out. And he'll reveal it to the other families and they will come after her, Bertinelli or not. And in the end, she basically goes to one of her uncles on the day of his daughter's wedding. You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. And he, she tells him that Casamento arranged for the family's, her family's death at the Order of Mandragora, the, the Don of Dons back in Sicily. And basically, she arranges for her uncle to kill him. And her hands are clean, technically. She didn't fire the shot. Uh, clean, kind of. They're bloodless, if not clean. She's, she's guilty of solicitation. Yeah, basically. And the question is clearly disappointed in this. The question had really believed he had led her down a, a certain path and she clearly did not. It was still about Omerta. It was still about family and blood crying for blood, which nine times out of ten, I hate it when they work the title of the story into the book. It Because it usually feels so forced. But this almost feels like it was 
backwards because it makes so much sense here that the blood cries for blood is a recurring motif in this story. And I got, oh, the other thing, boy, Rooker really kind of turns the screws in the, the best way when it turns out that the reason she survived the Bertinelli massacre. Oh, the, this hurts. Oh, yeah, boy. Was because of a misunderstanding that it was her mother, that she was the sister of one of, the, I think it was the Galantes or the Panessas. There's, there's so many different mob family names. And so she was the, the sister of Adon. So when Casamente arranged the murder, he was like, don't kill the sister. And the hitman didn't understand and thus didn't kill the sister. He saw that father, mother, brother, sister. So he didn't kill the sister. Despite Casamento being furious and holding the death of the woman he loved against her, against his own flesh and blood, it's heartrending. The uh, the hitman got whacked after that. Had to have been right. Um, Huntress, I think, kills him herself ah. in those early Huntress issues. So yeah, yeah. Oh, and I just get it, looking at my notes about that last sequence. I believe this might be the first time that we mentioned that the docks in Gotham are the Dixon docks. Mm. There's also early on Huntress's apartment is on Maldoff Street or Avenue, uh, named after Shelley Maldoff, Sheldon Maldoff, one of the great Batman creators of the Silver Age, because every street in Gotham is named after somebody. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to retcon that. Uh, they're the Deanie docks. That works. I, I think Paul Dini deserves more than a skating rink, although that's a, that's a nice touch. <laughs> this, this ending is a very Rucka ending. He loves a bittersweet sort of ambiguous ending. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a hard ending, but it works for a mob story. A mob story doesn't have a happy ending. Now, you see, uh, one day... We're going to upload the video here and you can understand the joys of, of seeing Bess uh, in Matt's lap, in his face when he's trying to make this serious point. Uh, but you, for now, you'll just have to rely on me describing it. Yeah. Yep. Say hi to the folks at home, Bess. Wow. <laughs> yeah. She, she's, oh, yes. You're a good little, little monster. You're, please stop stepping on my laptop. I step on the laptop. Don't pause the recording. We're almost done. I've got the the mouse. Trust me, I've got it moved away from anywhere that would stop it because Uh, she's she's right in his face. Yeah, she loves me. I want I want attention. I want attention. (laughs) I want it right now. Yep that that is 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 my my good girl. But yeah, the the whole sequence, the, the mob wedding is just so the godfather. It is absolutely you know the day of my daughter's wedding which is fine i mean hey if you're a fan of that and you're getting the chance to write a mob story with a mob wedding how are you not gonna do that homage what was what was the last thing that came up in uh, long halloween it opens with, yeah that's right uh, it was the roman's nephew's wedding but still it was it was the thing and Long Halloween was still 
not that old by this point. It was only two or three years old, so it wasn't this seminal Batman text. But, you know, a few years later, if, if it had reached that point by then, you would have loved a little nod to that. Because you know, there's that line that Selena has at the beginning of the long Halloween about, you know, they'll say, you know, in the future, they'll say it's hot, but not as hot as the night Johnny VD got married. And boy, if you did a mob wedding now, you absolutely would have to include that line in a Gotham mob wedding just to prove that, you know, your Batman history. Uh, I also got a kick, a couple of little notes in issue one one or two, you, you see Helena looking at a newspaper with an artist's rendering of Huntress that is so like right out of the 90s with the, the, the gritted teeth and the giant boobs and the wasp waist. It's absolutely Burchett poking fun at that 90s female hero aesthetic. And, and God bless them for like actually writing an article in that panel. Like it's not just squiggly lines like they actually gave a shit. Yeah, not, not even Laura Ipsum. It's it's actual text, which is great. Uh, because as a newspaper guy, I notice these things. As does friend of the show, editor, Matt's best friend, Dan Grote. Yes, indeed. I, I also like that when you see Huntress first sketching out her costume, when she's sketching the mask, Hunter the the. The hair on the sketch is that giant frizzy hair from that 90s Huntress series. Burchett is having a lot of fun doing the art on this book. And you can absolutely tell that he's having a blast. And, and I'm sure part of this series, uh, like when Rucka came on to, uh, to the Rebirth Wonder Woman, part of it, I'm sure, was cleaning up a lot of this the stuff that was just not going to work moving forward. Oh yeah. And some of the contradictory continuity that had been built over the course of the time since Huntress left that mature readers corner and fully joined the bat family. I mean, he wrote her first in no man's land. He was one of the central writers of her arc and there are references to what happened there. And so this is really setting up a lot of, or cleaning up, maybe not cleaning up, but following up on a lot of what Rucka did with Huntress during that period. And she's not out of the picture for too long after this, but she's, yeah, actually, I mean, she's gone for an, a year or so after this. She steps out of the spotlight for about a year after the end of this story, or I guess eight months. I knew there was a little bit, a little while there before she comes back. But it's, it's a really good story and a really good introduction to the Helena Bertinelli Huntress if you're not familiar with the character. And she's still wearing the costume that is neck to foot. It, we're not at the Jim Lee, hey, let me give her a, a belly shirt costume yet. Ugh. Yeah, I, I, I really have always liked this version of the Huntress costume. And this is also at the same time, or I guess shortly after, or around the same time, she's a member of the Justice League that Bruce brought her as his recruit for the JLA. 
which, you know, she had a pretty high profile as a character at this point. So getting a, a co-headlined miniseries with Batman right now was a big deal. I think that's about it for me. And I've got nothing else. So that means it's time to put this book on the big board. So this one's going up higher, considerably higher than the first two. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it beats uh, Pacatia, though. No, no. That's our that's definitely our ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's top half. It's it's probably where where is Heikatia right now? Heikatia right now is at number twelve. Okay, I think this is in the high teens. In that the you know higher numbers, not high on the list, but higher numbers in the teens. Uh, remind me, Batman two thirty four, half an evil. What the hell was that? Harvey does an elaborate series of things to break open a post and steal some gold doubloons that he could have. We really have that at 19. Wow. That seems high. O'Neill and Adams first Uh, appearance of two face after 30 years, the story that brings that character back where if it weren't for that, one of the seminal Batman villains of the modern era could have languished in obscurity and uh, it's real pretty adam's draws like damn fine two-face all right you, you you talked me back into it half an evil parentheses two-face i think this beats that yeah it's got more substance than thrill killer even though i certainly love that uh more substance than little gotham yeah I, I would say my I don't think it beats Sleigh Ride, another story that centers on one of the Batman family with Batman having only a, a smaller presence in the book. Just coming off Tower of Babel, and uh, I, I do like that's just sort of cringe-inducing aspects of that book. I, If it was up to me, if this was my show, I would put this at, uh, at 16, but it's our show, Matt. What do you think? I could go with that. I love New World Order, but New World Order is, is generally a good story, but my deep and abiding love of New World Order is from one of those four issues. The other three issues are really good, too, but it's issue three that seals the deal for me. This has more Batman, more substance for Gotham as a whole. So I think inserting it in between the two JLA arcs there works for me. All right. So uh, that looks like it's it for this week. Uh, Next week, it's sequel time. As you look at the sequels to three books that we've already covered, uh, we'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June is Dead, Long Live June, June. uh, Joshua Wheel, Zach Rabaroff, and Abigail Hartbaum for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at BatChatComics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, 
Spotify, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop Thursday mornings. And you can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. Get off your ass, freeloaders. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm so excited for more Vampire Batman next week. And for tonight, though, I'm out of here. Good night, Miami. <laughs> and be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all of the other stuff that Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.